0: Good morning. Acts seventeen twenty two through 33. Then Paul, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. The word of the Lord. Uh,
1: Do you guys know what a crucial conversation is? There's a best-selling book about this. A crucial conversation is three things, wide, high, and deep. Uh, So first, a crucial conversation is a conversation in which people have a wide variety of convictions. They believe different things about something. Second, a crucial conversation is high stakes. It's about something that really matters, not just which ice cream flavor is best. And third, a crucial conversation has deep emotions. These are things about which people are passionate. When you put all of these things together, wide variety of convictions, high stakes, deep emotions, that's a crucial conversation. Over the next several weeks, we are going to have a series of crucial conversations about some of the most controversial topics in our culture. You know, over the years at this church, we've talked about controversial things like race and justice and politics, and we're going to continue talking about those things. But there are other things that we haven't talked about as much, things like sexuality, gender, transgender identities, abortion, things like that. And I don't know about you, but in many ways, those conversations feel even more dangerous to me. It's kind of like a landmine. Like if you put your foot in the wrong place, you could get blown up. But we need to talk about these things. And one reason is because the rest of the world is already talking about them. And if we're not talking about them here at church, then frankly, I think we're evading our responsibility. But another reason is because I regularly hear questions from many of you asking me about these things. People want to know, does the Bible speak to these things? And if so, how? So over the next several weeks, we're going to have a series of crucial conversations. But as we do that, I want to try to do four things, four goals. Uh, One goal is this. I want to slow down. We are so used to thinking that everything in this world can be expressed in a tweet or a meme. We take incredibly complex ideas and we oversimplify them. One of my goals is to just slow down the conversation and create space for complexity. Another goal is, um, yeah, we want to listen to what the Bible says, but we also want to be respectful to the many other viewpoints that are out there. That doesn't mean we're always going to agree, but we do want to listen well and interact graciously with other viewpoints. Another goal is, um, I want for us to be gentle and sensitive. Many of the things we're going to be talking about are places where you have experienced hurt and trauma and shame. So having these conversations is kind of like heart surgery. It needs to be done, but we need to be really gentle. Lastly, uh, one of the things that that A theme or or, uh, that binds all of these conversations together is a reality that's often overlooked um, in these conversations and that's just the reality that we are embodied creatures how does our embodiedness impact these conversations we want to take this into account so with all of that in mind are we ready to dive in this week we are not going to begin with any one of these specific conversations instead remember we want to slow down So this week, we need to begin by just asking ourselves, what are the assumptions that we bring when we enter into these conversations? For instance, um, many of you have probably seen uh, this sign. It says, in this house, we believe. And then there's a series of beliefs, things like Black Lives Matter, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal. Love is love, things like that. Now, my point right now is not to debate these things. My point is really much more basic. You know what these are? These are crucial conversations. People take a stand on these things. But here's the big question. What's standing beneath the stands we take? You, you, you look at a house and it looks like the house is just standing on the ground, but it's not. There's an unseen foundation standing beneath the house. In the same way, what's standing beneath the stands we take? In other words, what are our unseen foundations? What are our hidden assumptions? What are the beliefs we just take for granted? For instance, there's no way that we can take a stand on things like racial justice or reproductive rights without a whole host of beliefs and assumptions about things like human rights, justice, individual autonomy, personal dignity. Whenever we enter into these conversations, it's important for us to be as clear as we possibly can about our assumptions. Because if we're not clear about our assumptions, how can we be clear in our conversations? This passage that we just read helps us to do that. So as we dig in this morning, this passage is about a famous interaction between the Apostle Paul and a group of Greek philosophers. In this interaction, we learn three things. The inescapability of faith, the story of the gospel, and the embodiedness of God. Okay? The inescapability of faith, the story of the gospel, and the embodiedness of God. So let's begin with the inescapability of faith. Uh, This interaction that Paul has with these Greek philosophers, he's showing them how even though they have never heard of the God of the Bible, at a much deeper level, Paul is saying, you already know this God. Look at how he does this. Um, They lead Paul to the top of a hill called the Areopagus, and Paul says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, For as i walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship i even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god here's what's going on in the ancient world there were all kinds of gods you had the god of the ocean the god of the harvest there were all these gods and all these gods had their own altar but they also built an altar to an unknown god maybe they were thinking look just in case we missed one. Let's be safe. We wouldn't want to unnecessarily anger one of the gods. And so Paul is telling them that you have this sense that there's this God out there, but you're not sure who he is. Let me tell you about this God. And that's exactly what he does. Over the next several verses, I'm not going to quote them, but Paul tells them about a God who created this world and everything in it. A God who is completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from humans. And a God who's in total control of all human history. This is a God who is infinitely beyond anything in all creation. But then Paul says, God did this so that people would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Do you see how unique this is? on the one hand this is an infinite transcendent god but on the other hand this is a god who comes near and wants relationship with us paul is saying you already know this god how is that he's saying you already know this god and and to prove it he quotes their own poets he says one of your poets said for in him we live and move and have our being another of their poets said we're his offspring Paul is telling these Greek philosophers, hey, you may not consciously know about this God or believe in this God, but this God is constantly showing up in your poems, in your songs, in your stories, in your culture. You may not see the foundations of the house, but it's there. Friends, here's uh, why this is so important for us. Remember, Paul says, I see that you are very religious. If we were to translate this into modern terms, it's like Paul is telling us, I can see that you all have faith. Now, I'm sure many people would reject this statement. People say, look, I'm a modern scientific person. I don't have faith. I have facts. I understand why people say that, but wouldn't it depend on how we define faith? One very popular definition of faith would be to say that faith is an irrational belief in the supernatural. And if that's what faith is, then it's clear there are many people in this world who do not have faith. Another popular definition of faith is, it's kind of an optimistic attitude, like when people say, hey, you just got to have faith that things are going to work out. I would like to propose, however, another definition of faith, one that I think is actually a lot closer to the way Paul talks about faith in this passage. Faith is any unprovable assumption about the way things really are. Faith is any unprovable assumption about the way things really are. If that's what faith is, then every single person in the world has faith because we all have unprovable assumptions about the way things really are. And again, I understand that perhaps many of our atheist friends might push back on this. But here's the thing. Unprovable does not mean irrational or unreasonable. It just means we can't prove it by the scientific method. But that does not mean that we do not have really good reasons for believing in something. And let me give you one really big example. Was it evil, not just wrong or unfortunate, was it evil for the Nazis to murder millions of Jews during World War II? I think most people would say, yeah, that was evil. But how do we know that? If there there is no God, and this world is all there is, the only way we could possibly know that is by looking at resources we already have within this world. So, for instance, uh, some people say that morality is a genetic code that's hardwired into us, and it, it hardwires moral feelings and moral instincts into us, and that helps our species to survive. Other people say that morality is a social construction that helps us get along with each other so we can all live a better life. Those are two of the biggest theories of morality in this world, and they both are looking at resources we already have within this world. But here's the challenge. Moral feelings and moral constructions are not the same thing as moral realities. If all we have are moral feelings and moral constructions, then we can say, look, we prefer that Hitler not murder millions of Jews, but we can never say he must not do that. In other words, if, if we can stand inside of this world and we can say, look, this world, it, th- here's the way the world is. But if the only place we have to stand is inside this world, how can we say, here's the way the world is, but it's not the way it's supposed to be? If this world is all there is, then by, defini- by definition, it's already exactly the way it's supposed to be. And yet we know it's not. Why do we know that? Friends, here's the big idea for us this morning, and it's an idea that we need to hold on to for all of the rest of the conversations we're going to have throughout this series. Here it is. Unless we have some place to stand outside this world, we can never take a stand on anything inside this world. Does that make sense? Unless we have some place to stand outside this world, we can never take a stand on anything inside this world. In other words, in order for us to critique the status quo, we need to get outside of the status quo. That means that everyone in the world has faith of of some kind in something beyond this world, um, whether we acknowledge it or not. So whenever our secular society says things like black lives matter or women's rights or human rights, do you know what those statements are? An altar to an unknown God. Unless we have some place to stand outside this world, we can never take a stand on anything inside this world. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen the inescapability of faith. But next, we learn about the story of the gospel here because here's the thing there are many surveys recently over the last several years that show that people are getting less religious people are going to church less but one of the other big things that surveys show us is that none of that means that people don't believe in god anymore most people still do so um the the problem is not that people are skeptical about god it's that people are skeptical about the christian god and if that describes any of you at all then listen this interaction that paul is having with these philosophers is giving us um, some powerful messages the the story of the gospel gives us a message for the mind and it also gives us a message for the heart it gives us a message for the mind remember paul is showing these greek philosophers that even though they don't um, consciously believe in the god of the bible at a deeper level they already know this god and you remember how he does that he quotes their poets in other words, Paul is showing them how this God that, that they've never even heard of, nonetheless, this God is constantly showing up in all of the stories they tell about the world. And guess what? The same thing is true for us. If we were to go back to that lawn sign we were looking at just a bit ago, um, remember, there's all these statements, things like, Black Lives Matter, No Human is Illegal, Love is Love. These statements are telling a very specific story about the kind of world we live in, a world that's built on moral principles like human rights, individual dignity, and justice for the oppressed. Here's the question, where do these moral principles come from? especially think about in our culture, for instance, you know, we are a culture that is very much focused on justice for the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized rightly emphasizes those things. But where does that story come from? We have a tendency to think that, well, it's a modern thing. We're just very enlightened. We're more progressive now, but it's not. This actually comes to us from the Bible. For instance, I frequently mentioned Tom Holland uh, Here, I I always have to point out, not the Spider-Man actor, Tom Holland is a highly regarded British historian. And by the way, he's not a Christian. He's not trying to convert people. But a few years ago, he wrote a book called Dominion, which is all about how Christianity shaped the moral imagination of the entire world over the last 2,000 years. So in the last chapter of the book, Tom Holland talks about the civil rights movement. He talks about the Me Too movement. He talks about the LGBTQIA movement. He also talks about the anti-abortion movement. And all of these movements are concerned with um, justice and protection for the most vulnerable and weakest members of our society. Now, remember, Tom Holland is a historian, and yet he's telling us that all of these movements owe their existence to the Bible. And here's how he puts it in the book. He says... The trace elements of Christianity continued to infuse people's morals so utterly that many people failed even to detect their presence. Do you realize how close this is to what Paul is saying? We may not believe in this God. We may not acknowledge this God, but this God is showing up in our stories. Tom Holland goes on to say this. Like dust particles, so fine as to be invisible to the naked eye, these moral principles were breathed in equally by everyone, believers, atheists, and those who never paused so much as to think about religion. Had it been otherwise, then no one would ever have got woke. Tom Holland is a secular historian who is telling us that the reason that our culture puts so much emphasis on moral principles like human rights, individual dignity, justice for the oppressed is because those things come to us from the Christian God, that this Christian God is constantly showing up in the stories we tell about this world. Friends, the story of the gospel is a powerful message for our minds, but it's also a powerful message for our hearts, because remember what we saw just a bit ago this world is not the way it's supposed to be that is not just a feeling we have it's not just a social construction we experience that as an inescapable reality this world is filled with things like pain hurt abuse trauma and violence many of your lives have been touched and your hearts have been shattered by those things this world is not the way it's supposed to be how do we respond to that well we try to fix the world. We try to heal the world. We try to save the world and save ourselves, but no matter how hard we try, try we're never really able to do it, right? Why is that? All right, friends, this is a hard message for our hearts, but it's a message we need to hear. One of the main reasons, the main reason, we're not ever really able to save the world and save ourselves is because the thing we need to save the world from is ourselves. So for instance, we're celebrating this week the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. Martin Luther King Jr. literally gave his life trying to make this world a better place. But in his autobiography, he tells the story about how he grew up in a strict, fundamentalist, religious home. But then when he left home and went to college, he got exposed to much more liberal ideas. Maybe some of you have had that experience. As a result he started believing more in things like the essential goodness of humanity and the inherent power of human uh, reason but then he eventually got <clears throat> excuse me he eventually got to a point where he realized that none of those things could ever save the world here's how he puts it in his autobiography he says certain experiences i had in the south with its vicious race problem made it very difficult for me to believe in the essential goodness of humanity. The more I observed the tragedies of history and humanity's shameful inclination to choose the low road, the more I came to see the depths and strength of sin. Now, here's the thing. Martin Luther King never stopped trying to make the world a better place, and neither should we. But Martin Luther King was also deeply persuaded that only God, only God, could ever come into this world and make this world the place it's meant to be. In other words, Martin Luther King was deeply persuaded of the gospel because the gospel doesn't say that if we just obey God and work really hard, then we can heal the world and save ourselves. That's traditional religion, but the gospel says that that only by God entering the story of this world Can we ever see a world that's healed? And can we ever experience the the salvation we long for? It's only if God shows up in our story to heal the world and save us. Friends, that is a hard message for our hearts, but it's a message we really need to hear. But here's the question. How does this God show up in the story of this world? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen the inescapability of faith. We've also just seen the story of the gospel, but the last thing we see in this interaction is the embodiedness of God. At the very end of his speech, Paul says this. He says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's talking about Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying that that one day God is going to set all things right. This world will finally become the place where everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. But then Paul says, He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead and as soon as paul mentions the resurrection of the dead it says when they that's the philosophers when they heard about the resurrection of the dead some of them sneered but others said we want to hear you again on this subject but you see people sneered they mocked they rejected because for the greeks the idea of physical embodied resurrection was ridiculous they believed that the ultimate goal is to escape this material world and live as spirits in some disembodied reality by the way that's still the dominant image today we call it going to heaven which makes sense i mean this world is filled with evil and suffering it makes perfect sense that we would want to escape this world but instead of helping us to escape this world this god the god of the bible promises one day to renew the world new bodies new creation new everything because only the gospel tells us about a god who shows up in the story of this world not just as an abstract idea or a list of moral rules or spiritual principles this god shows up in the story of this world with a body And Paul says, remember he says, that the resurrection, the physical embodied resurrection of Jesus is proof of the gospel. Now listen, at one sense, of course, we can't empirically prove the resurrection of Jesus because we weren't there to eyewitness it. But remember, unprovable does not mean irrational or unreasonable. Of all the religions in the world, as far as I've ever been able to see, only Christianity stakes its very existence on a historical event, the physical embodied resurrection of Jesus. If that event never happened, then Christianity is pointless. It doesn't matter. We should just leave right now and go to brunch and drink mimosas. If the resurrection never happened, Christianity doesn't matter. But if it did happen, friends, nothing matters more. And listen, there's all kinds of historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. It's there for you to explore. I don't have time to go into that this morning. But here's the big point. When the the gospel, Christianity is not inviting you to believe in some bearded man in the sky or a flying spaghetti monster, things that are not just unprovable, but ridiculous, irrational, and unreasonable. No. The gospel is inviting you to grapple with the historical person of Jesus Christ. His physical embodied presence in this world changed history. Jesus is the reason that our modern world believes in moral principles like human rights, individual dignity, and justice for the oppressed. That it's the reason we believe in those things. So if you're skeptical about Christianity and yet you believe in these moral principles, then here's the challenge, you have a view of reality. We all have a view of reality. The question is, can your view of reality support your experience of reality? For instance, let me tell you a story about a poet named W.H. Auden. In the early 20th century, W.H. Auden, along with many other English intellectuals, they abandoned their childhood faith as immature and naive and callow, and they became atheists. They mocked Christianity. But then in 1939, Auden watched a newsreel in a movie theater in Manhattan about the Nazi invasion of Poland. And when the, the, the movie screen showed um, footage of Polish Jews on the screen, the German members in the audience of that movie theater stood up and started yelling, kill the Poles, kill the Poles. When that happened, it was a huge disruption for Auden's view of reality because he believed that any educated person, of course, is going to support human rights, and and there was no one on the face of the earth that was more educated than the Germans, and yet here they were, <laughs> slaughtering millions of Jews. This was so disruptive for W. H. Auden that he basically said, "Look, I don't believe in God, but if there is no God." then how in the world are we English intellectuals supposed to say that these German intellectuals are wrong? He, he realized the problem of that. Unless we have some place to stand outside of this world, we can never take a stand on anything inside this world. At that moment, W.H. Auden realized that his view of reality couldn't support his experience of reality. What do you do when that happens? Well, you have basically two choices. Either we can live with a huge contradiction right in the middle of our lives. And by the way, we human beings are really good at that. It's called denial. Or we can change our view of reality. When W. W. H. Auden realized this, he did not say, look, maybe my experience of reality is wrong, because he knew. He knew the Nazis were wrong. Instead, he said, "Hmm, maybe my view of reality is wrong. Maybe I need to change my view of reality, and that's exactly what he did. He became a Christian. In fact, in an interview he gave later, he talked about that experience in the movie theater, and he said, I wondered then why I reacted as I did against this denial of every humanistic value. The answer brought me back to the church. Friends, if you're skeptical about Christianity. And listen, I understand why so many people would be. There's so many inconsistencies in the church here in America today. It makes sense why people would be skeptical. But listen, if you are skeptical, the resurrection, the physical embodied resurrection of Jesus Christ is challenging you to realign your view of reality with your experience of reality. And if you are a Christian, a Christian listen, here's what all of this means for us. Look at Paul and how he's behaving here in this passage. You know, if you go back earlier in this story, it t- we didn't have time to read it, but it tells us that when Paul showed up in Athens, he saw all the idols and all the altars in the city and that he was provoked by it. He was mad. He was angry. He didn't like all of this idolatry. And yet, when Paul shows up for this crucial conversation with these Greek philosophers, does he just blow, at, blow up at them? Does he call them idiots and idolaters? No. Paul begins with respect. Paul goes on to to work hard to find things that they can both agree on. Paul knows that he says, look, I could be mocked. I might get rejected. But I'm going to stay for this conversation. And he does stay because his love for people is greater than his fear of rejection. Friends, can we do the same thing as Paul? The, The world desperately needs the church to to begin with respect, to begin by showing and focusing on ways that we can agree with with people who disagree with us. Not by blasting them, not by uh, just yelling at them and getting mad and loudly asserting what we believe. We need to enter into relationship with people and, and behave the same way that Paul behaves in this passage. Can we do that? The only way that we can do that is because, listen, Paul was led up a hill. Called the Areopagus. Paul was rejected and mocked, but Paul stayed because he was driven more by love for people than fear of rejection. Friends, the only way we can do the same thing as Paul is because Jesus was led up another hill called Calvary. Jesus was mocked and rejected. Paul came down his hill with his life intact, but Jesus gave his life on that hill. Jesus was stripped naked and nailed to a cross, and yet Jesus stayed because of love for us. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was entering our story. He was showing up in our stories of grief, hurt, pain, loss, abuse, trauma, and violence. He was absorbing all of those things in his own body on the cross. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he was rewriting the story of this world as a place where everything sad comes untrue. Dear ones, this is a God who is constantly showing up in our stories. And the ultimate place that God showed up in our story was through the embodied physical presence of Jesus Christ in this world. And because Jesus showed up embodied in our story, then we can show up embodied in the stories of the people in our world. We can show up embodied with grace and love and respect because we're called by a God of love who calls us to love others and be motivated more by love of others than we are motivated by fear of rejection or mockery ourselves. Can we do that? The only way we can do that, the only way we can stay in conversation with others is because on the cross, Jesus stayed on the cross for us. Would you pray with me? Abba, we praise you this morning that you have showed up in the story of this world. You didn't just write the story. You didn't just create this world. You showed up in this story through Jesus, and we thank you for that this morning. Father, we pray that you would help us as we're about to embark over the next several weeks on a series of very challenging conversations. Father, I pray especially these are things um, that, that, that are not just, these are not just ideas. These are not just um, abstract disagreements. Father, th- these are stories about people's lives these are human beings created in your image and so i pray for all of us Father, as we have these conversations that you would help us to be clear and honest about our own faith assumptions and especially i pray that you would help us to to grapple faithfully with the reality that that only your gospel really gives us a foundation for all of the things that are so important to us as as we talk about these subjects things like Um, individual dignity and rights and justice. Father, these are your passions. These are your concerns. I pray that you will help us to hold on to these things and especially to show up embodied in the lives of the people around us as we engage inevitably in this world in crucial conversations. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.